Coming up. If we walk away from our people and they feel belittled, they don't feel uplifted, they feel smaller, they don't feel larger than life, then we have done something wrong. Today on In Session, Leading the Judiciary, we examine the art of caring leadership and how mastering it leads to impressive results. Heather Younger says that although caring is an art each leader practices in their own way, there is science behind why it works. A best-selling author and international speaker, Heather Younger is also CEO and founder of Employee Fanatics, a leading employee engagement, diversity and inclusion, and leadership development consulting firm. By teaching others about caring leadership, she strives to be a champion for positive change in workplaces everywhere. We're talking with Heather Younger about her book, The Art of Caring Leadership, How Leading with Heart Uplifts Teams and Organizations. Our host is Lori Murphy, Assistant Division Director for Executive Education at the FJC. Lori, take it away. Heather, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited. So how do you define caring leadership and why do you say it's both art and science? Well, caring leadership is showing concern and kindness towards those who look to you for guidance and leadership. And the reason why I like to expand it to guidance and not just leadership is that many people will say, well, I don't have a manager title. I don't have a supervisor title, so this doesn't apply to me. And I'm going to answer that's not right. It applies to everyone. We all need to show up with more care. Um, and then this idea of art and science is really tied to this to, to the fact that this is not a cookie cutter approach. So while I give, I put down behaviors, I share stories, how leaders choose to kind of use their unique brushstrokes, their unique leadership style and behaviors around certain team members is really going to be up to them. I'm just giving them the framework to on which to actually lead and to say, okay, am I empowering my people? What does that look like for me? What does it look like for these people in these, these scenarios? Do I listen well? Here's the framework for doing that. Do I follow that? And how, where do I fall short? So uh, it's, it's saying this is not a cookie cutter approach. Leadership and relationships are not cookie cutter, but it's the way in which we choose to kind of use our unique brushstrokes is, is the key there. I understand from a moral perspective why caring leadership matters, but what's the business case for it or the return on investment? If we look at, if you think of Gallup and all the surveys, surveys they've done over the years with engagement and how the numbers, you know, like, why, why are the numbers stagnant? Why are they not improving? And it, it really is, I think, because folks don't understand that the, the elements of care that, that I laid out are, are really the things that drive uh, people wanting to stay, people wanting to be engaged. Now, there are obviously some complexities with that now during the pandemic and this great resignation where there really is this need to recalibrate what it is our people value uh, in, in an employer and how we can actually meet them there. And so I would say engagement is a big one because, of course, if you have engagement, you have people staying, then we don't have to keep hiring new people. So the cost of acquisition goes down, right? If engagement's up, productivity goes up. All of those things are direct correlations. In the book that I have, The Art of Caring Leadership, I try to highlight how did we improve from a numbers perspective, dollars perspective from this point to this point, because I know there are some people who ask that question. Well, what does that mean for me? Is it just a nice to have? <laughs> no, it's more than that. It gets you a lot more than just the nice to haves. Or public sector. So from that perspective, what would you say the return on investment is? 
often what happens in my business is that we track engagement scores and we look at what success looks like for that particular client, whatever, whether it's public sector, private sector, we, we are asking them, what is a success look at? What are you measuring? Because for them, it could be like how many people are walking out the door. Um, it could be all kinds of things, right? How many people are calling out sick? Um, so you track those things to know really what your personal ROI is for your organization. But, but in the end, it boils down to if I don't have to hire a whole bunch of people over and over again and train them over and over again, that is a tremendous amount of money we're saving. And you're going to do that by showing more care. So I would say most leaders believe their employees think they're good, caring managers, while most employees report the exact opposite. How do you explain the gap? Well, I think a big part of it is that there's a disconnect that's there between the leader and the front line. Often, if you know, for anybody who leads at least one person, it, it ends up being that we get so overwhelmed in the day to day of the work we're doing that we, you know, us taking the time to slow down and do the things I recommend, which tend to be in most people's minds really soft, but in the end actually cre- create and produce so much hard, the hard results there. And they are actually the hardest things to do as well. Um, Listening to someone means we have to pause. We got to turn off our phone. We have to turn off the laptop. We have to do all those things that we want to be doing, thinking we're getting something done, but we're not being nearly as effective as we could be if we just paused and actually sat and listened to the person. We could get more out of them, get more done through and with them if we just listen. So that's one of the things that, that I talk about. So many of our listeners are familiar with research done by Jim Coozes and Barry Posner. In their book, they say a key leadership practice is encourage the heart. So how does caring leadership expand upon what they describe as encourage the heart? We all think we care. Caring is like this nebulous thing. It's like, oh, he cares for me. Oh, they don't care for me. Well, what what, what I'm doing and I've founded it on research, qualitative research, listening to different leaders and reading over 30,000 employee engagement survey comments and, and sitting in and facilitating almost, almost 100 uh, employee focus groups to say, okay, what is the truth of the matter here? Let's find out the intersection between what employees need from us and what leaders are actually doing or what they're failing to do. And that's what I have done is I've kind of found the intersection points to say, now boiling down these nine behaviors, these are the behaviors. If you do these things more consistently, you will be then pulling on the heart, which is why I have that podcast called leadership with heart, right? Caring leadership, leading with heart. Um, there is an RI. There's, it is a nice, nice to have. But boy, when we really do it and we focus on being intentional about how we behave and how we make people feel in, in our presence, it makes a huge difference on whether they want to stay with us. There's a huge attraction principle behind all of this. We recently interviewed uh, Dr. Marilyn Gist, and uh, she describes humility as a deep regard for others' dignity. And it seems to me as if caring leadership and leader humility are also connected. Can we have one without the other? No. (laughs) I think they are connected. (laughs) I don't think we can have one without the other. This idea of having people feel like there's dignity left in their interactions is absolutely foundational in the caring leadership framework. Absolutely. If we walk away from our people and they feel belittled, they don't feel uplifted, they feel smaller, they don't feel larger than life, then we have done something wrong. You mentioned it in your book, this notion of psychological safety, which Amy Edmondson has done a lot of work on. So how 
how does caring leadership foster psychological safety in an organization? Yeah, when, when we think about caring leadership, so remember the definition is show, showing concern and kindness towards those who look to you for guidance. So as we are thinking about uh, being in team meetings, whether it's like this on a, on a kind of a screen or something in, in person, often people are really, really, really afraid of being ridiculed. Actually, going taking this even further, you think about people are really, really afraid of public speaking. And it is because they are afraid of being ridiculed. They're afraid of people looking at them and judging them harshly. So we're in the workplace and we are sitting around a table and we want to be able to um, you know, tell tell our truth, tell our version, but we don't feel comfortable doing that. It's the role of the of the leader, the caring leader, to set that place, to set the mark, to say, I want to hear the hard things, and everybody in this room needs to be prepared to hear the hard things. And if someone shows up in a way towards the person who's prepared to tell the hard things in a way that's hurtful, then I, as a caring leader, will step in to make sure to create more of that safety there, to defend the position, to make sure that they're, and, and to give them appreciation and recognition for actually telling the truth. So I think that's the role that it's, that's how it's connected. Well, and it goes back to what you were saying earlier about listening too, right? If you're not paying attention, it's really hard to even notice that someone doesn't feel safe. Absolutely. Yeah, you have to pay attention. If you think about like all of this, if we're not paying attention to the people around us, one way or shape or form, the, the, the verbal or the nonverbal cues, then it's going to be hard for us to show up more care. It's when we when we decide to rest ourselves, we decide to quiet ourselves and to really pay attention to what is being said or not being said, that's when we can get to the heart of it. That's when we can lead the whole person, we can create the safety, but we can't do it until we're doing that. So you're you're hitting you're hitting the nail on the head with that, Lori. Heather, you alluded to nine independent caring leadership behaviors. And the first of those is self-leadership. What does self-leadership mean and why is it a critical first step? Well, it's interesting. I, I often think people people were saying, well, why are you saying me, for me to take care of myself? Aren't you telling me to care for others? And the answer is, well, yes and yes. So you care for you first. It fill yourself up. So self-care is a component of it. Um, and making sure that you surround yourself with, let's say, coaches or accountability partners, people who can kind of help you calibrate and also reconcile your behaviors, uh, being congruent, being authentic. Uh, there's a lot of different components to it. Um, and I, I did make an attempt to really define what that is. And that was after, again, all of the different research I'd done. Okay, what does it spoil down to? What does self-leadership represent? So it's super important. We can't give or care for others if we don't care for us ourselves first. We don't have the energy. We won't have the focus. We won't have the drive to help other people or extend ourselves outside of ourselves to other people unless we first take care of ourselves. How do you know that you're either doing self-leadership well or maybe not i mean i kind of feel like it feeds one feeds the other number one do if you're feeling super depleted and really overstretched and not having the time to even sit with your people um if if you are like having a hard time even just finding the time to work out or eat well or whatever those things are you start to just gauge that for yourself then you're, you have to start to ask yourself how much then am i depleting or coming off as depleted with the people who are looking to me for guidance and it takes a lot of self-awareness it takes a lot of uh, a need to set aside time to evaluate and i would say a big part of that would be that accountability partner thing i mentioned which is Make sure you partner with people that are around you that you trust. They're not going to throw you underneath the bus. You trust them. Um, hopefully they're at your kind of level in the organization or above and, and, and have them evaluate. Let them know what your goals are. You're looking to be successful in one area and tell them what those are and have them watch you and then come back to you and report in a way you know, that, that hopefully is helpful and helps you grow. 
it strikes me that so many of our listeners are actually at the top of their organization, and it might be hard to have an accountability partner who feels comfortable, kind of back to that notion of psychological safety and vulnerability. What do you recommend in that instance? Well, I would say I mean, there's a couple different ways you can go. If you are if you belong to any associations or like uh, masterminds or anything like that, uh, you, that's a way to go because those people are probably all about at your level. So that's a good thing. The other thing is obviously coaches. I mean, I have to tell you, like, I, 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 I'm not marketing myself as an executive coach. I have a few clients that I coach for, but it's only because they I work with them in another organizational setting. But I would say that getting an, ex- an executive coach would be really, really critical because they help you see blind spots. Um, they help keep you accountable and on track. They, they see things you don't and they can um, it's make recommendations, suggestions, and you can tell them how it is you'd like to be communicated to. So, um, And if they go off track, you can kind of say, oh, that, I don't know if I like that very much or, oh, I love your being direct with me. They are those people who uh, are going to be there. They're looking out for what's best for you. They don't have any, they're not bought into the necessarily to the result as it relates to work because they're not working with you, but they're bought into the result of just you growing as a human. And so I think those are the best kind of relationships to have. I want to go back to what it feels like for the person being led by the caring leader. As we said earlier, employees don't always feel cared for or seen by their leaders. What can they do to make their employees feel seen and important? Mm-hmm. I would say, I mean, I would say the number one thing is to is to listen. I feel like foundationally, if I would have to pick out one behavior, because listening is an, is like it's an investigative process, right? If we think about it in the terms of judiciary, like me, I'm a former practicing attorney, so I get this. So it's just kind of an investigative process as we listen. We go deeper with the person in front of us. And then listening is a multi-pronged approach that re- requires us to remove all of our filters as much as we can. And also, you know, take ourselves out of our current environment and really step into the shoes of another, really showing that empathetic listening. But, but it also has to do with action and it has to do with communication. so that people really do in fact feel like they're heard. And if someone feels like they're heard, like their voices are important, like they're powerful, then it makes a huge difference on like how valued I feel. So I would say that would be the first one. And then I think there's some other things as it relates to appreciation. There's a statistic out by multiple different companies that do these kind of survey work that about 76% of employees will leave an organization for one that they feel that values them. So showing sincere appreciation that is personalized to the team member themselves, not cookie cutter, as I said before, right? The artistic approach, but we have to go deeper with the team member to find out what it is that makes them feel like they are valued and appreciated. And once we find that out, you know, we mark that down and whenever we can, we do that often. So I would say those two things are big ones. Um, and then the other thing is li- like allowing them grace. So allowing them, empowering them, but when they make the mistake or they make, cause they will inevitably make some kind of mistake that we allow them grace, that we um, continue to believe in them and empower them, but maybe even sharing a part of ourselves that we've made mistakes so they can see that we have been you know, vulnerable with them, that we aren't perfect and that we're giving them that ability to, to also lead into imperfection sometimes too. So those are a few ways I think we can do it. What do you mean when you say uh, that leaders need to meet employees where they are? Yeah, I mean, that's a, another way of saying kind of whole person leadership. Whole person leadership is not a new concept, but it really just, particularly during the pandemic, became 
brutally obvious, right? That because we were right on the screens with so many of our team members and we saw exactly what their lives were like. So before we didn't necessarily seek to understand, we didn't go deeper. We didn't ask the tough questions. So we didn't know a lot about them, but as we saw them on the team screen, the Zoom screen, the different screens, right? We could see that they had babies and dogs and elderly parents and college age students. And maybe they lived in a place that was tiny. We, 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 don't, we just didn't know about them in before then. So as we think about meeting them where they're at, a whole person leadership, it's saying, I'm going to take in all of you. I'm going to take it all of you, not just the thing that does the projects and the processes. I'm going to take in all of you. I'm going to sit with you in that moment. It doesn't mean that you're their therapist, although during the pandemic, we all had to a certain extent become more like their counselors, like therapists, like helping them think through solutions and really listening deeply so that compassion was really taking over in a big way during the pandemic. I hope we don't lose that. I hope we don't lose that. But I think that's a big part of it is we see and we know more about them and their whole person. So when they come to work, they know we care for them, not just for what they do for us but for who they are as people. It sounds like empathy and compassion are both necessary. What's the difference? And so for me, empathy and compassion are like a double elixir. So empathy is leaning in, listening to the person, understanding their perspective, sensing their pain, let's say. But compassion is actually taking action to alleviate that pain. So if it, for example, is you know, taking the time to be with them and helping them reframe their circumstances. Um, If it is helping them focus on a different mission that maybe they're not focused on right now and helping them uncover that, that would be compassionate action. So Heather, how does micromanaging impact or interfere with all that you just described? Oh boy. I mean, I think that when we think about micromanaging is the very opposite of empowerment. Um, it, it, it aligns more closely with delegation, but because with delegation, you, you, can you go do this thing for me? Oh, did you do that thing for me? Oh, how did you do that thing for me? How's that going with the thing for me, right? Empowerment is different. So micromanagement is going to suck the air out of people. It's not life-giving. It's life-taking because it says to them, I don't trust you. And so with empowerment, it says, oh, no. I trust you. And I also trust that you could potentially make a mistake. And I'm okay with giving you the ability to take those risks long they're calculated. And I will hold you accountable if you go way too off, you know, off field with these things. Caring leadership is is also setting clear expectations and holding people accountable and, and chatting with them and helping them course correct. Of course, caring leadership isn't just all squishy, fuzzy things. It's not all just, oh, my heart is singing. But here's the thing. And if we don't give people the guardrails, they end up flailing and then they do feel lost. And so we then we aren't showing care. So I want to just highlight that micromanagement, no good, but providing clear expectations and giving them guardrails and, and holding them accountable in, in the context of care and love and concern are good. You tell several stories in the book, and one that you tell is about your son preferring to navigate the canoe by himself. Why is it a useful leadership metaphor? So I was on a vacation with my son. He decides to go out on the canoe with his father for the first time in his life. And he's out there and he starts to feel, he starts to feel himself being pulled out. There may have been a, a sense that maybe they're going against each other. And he's like, no, I just want to do this by myself. And I said, well, listen, in order to get things accomplished, you have to make sure that you bring people along with you, that you're, that you have a team, that you trust that they're doing, you know, their part. And you, you have to learn to work together. I do think that from a metaphor, metaphor perspective, we do often say, gosh, if I could just do this myself, if I could just do it myself, or I'm going to give this to this person, but I'm going to check on them like a zillion times after that. It All that says to your people is that you don't have any trust in them. You may not even have confidence in yourself because that means you haven't explained yourself well enough and given enough goal clarity and the goals and the vision for them to move forward. Um, and also it tells them like, you need to calm down. <laughs> you, need to, you need to release control. 
and realize what it is you can influence, what you can control, and decide to let loose when you need to. How does being a caring leader encourage others to either let someone in the canoe or if they're already in the canoe to actually use their paddle? Ooh, I love that. I that's That was great. I think the key is is having that openness, right? It's being inclusive. I talk a lot about being a leader who's inclusive, like inviting more people around your decision-making table. And so if you think about that canoe concept, it's that same thing. It's like, well, I don't want to just put people in the canoe just because I think they're good canoe navigators. I want to put them on because I want them to stretch and I want them to grow. I want them to have an opportunity to show themselves. They should be able to use that paddle too. And maybe it's not the exact same way, or maybe I can teach them to do it the way that really would make the most efficient use of that paddle. But if I leave them out of the out of there and they can't use the paddle, now they haven't had the opportunity like the other people that are inside the canoe. So I, I would say that in that case, it'd just be more of an inclusive leader, opening up the lens, opening up the circle. It, would, it has to be a high level of exhaustion <laughs> to always be the one in the canoe and, and paddling by yourself. And I'm sure if my son would have not had my husband in that, well, he probably would have been pulled out, to be honest, right? He didn't realize because it was the unseen that he didn't realize how much effort was happening, kind of like that under the water view, what was happening under the water with the paddle. He wasn't seeing that because he, he was just uh, he was he was just only focused on what it is he could get accomplished by himself. <laughs> so, Heather, you suggest that we are the caretakers of their future. What do you mean by that? You know, I, uh, I remember interviewing um, Daniel McCollum and he was talking about this idea of breathing personal missions in our people into our people so that so that like often they may be discouraged or they may feel like they're they can't do the work the way they want or they're not getting you know uplifted enough but uh, but if we are great as leaders of, at looking at them, paying attention, this is that paying attention thing and saying, you know what, it looks like, like this is your area of strength or this is where you shine. And we then put them in those positions that really highlight the position, you know, the areas where they shine and the strengths they have, then we put them on a different path. That's where the caretaker concept comes in. It's like we are there to care for them in their career and their journey. And that may mean that that personal mission takes them outside our organization. It may mean they're not on our team in the end. The whole purpose of caring leadership, the first purpose, yes, is to retain people. If we're looking at it from a workplace perspective and leadership perspective, but it really isn't all about that. It's about leaving a legacy of care where then if they leave your employee, they're not there on your team anymore. They will either refer other people to you. They will use positive word of mouth about you and your leadership style of the organization. So you really extend yourself outside of just what you had in that interaction. It goes way outside of that. A lot of what you've been talking about today is really related to communication and specifically about feedback and and that feedback's really important. So how can feedback be an expression of caring? And what does that look like? If you haven't given people the end goal and you haven't like just said what success looks like, you don't have to tell them exactly how to get there. But if you want to make sure that they feel like they're coming along with you, you have to be able to provide feedback along the way and you can do it out of care. You know, I think a lot of people are, are a little frightened of doing that because they think, oh, well, then, then I'm going to scare them away or then they're going to think I'm a bad manager or then or then, right? I just keep going on and on. But instead, if you're able to sit with the person and frame the feedback in a way, not like in that like standard that let's couch a positive and a negative and then the positive. There's like people talk about that, right? It's very prescriptive. And while it's important to understand 
how to tactically do it, it's more important to know that when you're going into it, it's helping to grow them. It's helping them to shine more. It's helping them to arrive at the place where they feel like they're doing meaningful work, that they're they're reaching their capacity for growth. And we do that by providing the feedback. It is indeed a gift. I remember, I think about me, I got a, I got a 360 feedback that you get from like all these different people in the organization. My boss gave all of his direct reports like horrible scores. And I was like the best of the worst. And I was like, it took me four months to get over that feedback. And finally, I said, okay, what are the grains of truth here? What are the things that I can use and take with me to get better and better every single time? Because perfect practice makes perfect in this regard and in leadership. And so that's what, where the feedback is. It's a gift. Know that when you're giving it, if you give it from a place of care, a place of concern, a place of helping them grow and learn, they're going to take it that way and they're going to get better for it. Any other tips on giving feedback that helps the person receiving it feel cared for as opposed to feeling picked on? Yes. So I had uh, one of my team members who to this day is like one of my favorite humans on the planet. And she feels the same about me. And I've given her feedback, right? I've given her feedback that was constructive. So I saw this exchange and I did not like how this, my team member who happened to be like at a manager level was, was communicating and responding to this person's email. So after the exchange took place, I asked her to come into the office, like, come in, come, come, I want to chat with you. So I asked her, I said, what was that? I just happened to see that exchange. What was that exchange about? I just have to be honest. That was very unlike you. It was super uncharacteristic of the person I know you to be. I've seen it and I know you have the potential to not respond that way. What do you think you should do next? And she went to lunch with this person, took the person to lunch. They had a conversation. They weren't best friends after that, but they did have a level of respect. Uh, they, were, they could be colleagues. They could you know, show a level of respect and cordiality inside the workplace. And I think I was able to get to that point to have that conversation with her because I already do listen to her. I already empowered her. I already uplifted her. I already appreciated her because I showed the caring up front. But if you don't care up front, then you try to go to them. They're always going to feel like you're picking on them. So how can we encourage the people who work for us to give us the gift of feedback? Well, I think in here's the thing. It's like that, that idea of safe space creation, right? If we are at a table and we are saying something and someone wants to spout out something totally counter, we need to hold on to basically having really great emotional self-management, control ourselves because we may be like, like inside, underneath the surface, again, underneath the, the water, we may be really irritated that they're spouting out. But, but what we need to do instead is to pause and to listen and to thank them for giving a different view. Because it's when we surround ourselves with people that have different views that make us think differently, which means we act differently, right? We're, we're stronger anyway as leaders. Now they see, oh, it's okay to say something counter to what the boss wants. And I know in my first profession as an attorney, this is not something they taught us how to do. This is not something like, oh my gosh, you do not talk back to the judge. You do not talk back to your leader. You do not talk back to your manager. That was just not what we do. And so if we could just lessen our desire, our need to be almost militaristic in how we are interacting with our team members and instead say, how can I take a pause which is part of the emotional self-management thing. How can I pause? How can I remove the filter? And I mean, literally figuring out how you take your, your position off and step into their shoes and really lean in to listen. And it is an intentional act 
that gives you tons of dividends later. Yeah. And it's not just a mental exercise. There's body language involved too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yep. Heather, what else would you like to share with us today? Wow. I would, I would say this. I mean, the biggest thing is don't wait to be showing more care. Don't blame others if you didn't show more care. Know that you have the ability to show the care yourself. It's all a choice. It's a choice. And as long as you have your faculties, you can make those better choices. So hopefully you will you know, understand more about the behaviors, the framework yourself, go research those, and then just committing a little bit every day to get better. But it's not about perfection. This is a journey. Um, and it is about your own artistic and unique brushstrokes of leadership too. Heather, how can we learn more about you and your work? I would say going to heatheryounger.com will get you everything you need. <laughs> Heather, it's been a real pleasure to talk with you and wish you well and uh, just happy to have you today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Lori. And thanks to our listening audience. To hear more episodes of this podcast, visit the executive education page at fjc.dcn and click or tap podcast. You can also search for and subscribe to this podcast on your mobile device. In Session, Leading the Judiciary is produced by Shelley Easter. Our program is supported by Angela Long, Anna Glashkova, and the entire studio and live production team. Thanks for listening. Until next time. This podcast was produced at U.S. taxpayer expense.